In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A thousand years ago, roughly, Eric the Red led a group from Norway, Vikings, to this vast expanse that we now call Greenland in the middle of the Arctic. They tried to inhabit this seemingly uninhabitable island and succeeded. They set up a community that was both economically and, and uh, sustainable in every way and grew to be about 5,000 in number. They lasted there for decades. But miraculously, at the 450-year mark, they vanished without a trace. So anthropologists and archaeologists did what they do best and began to dig in to find out why that was so. We often think of Vikings as being seafarers, and perhaps they were to an extent, but the Vikings actually saw themselves as farmers and ranchers. It was a form of status to own cattle and to consume it, so much so that they wouldn't have anything else. So when they had overworked and deforested that tiny island and the topsoil grew thin, and the wind and the water began to carry it away, they soon realized they would starve. But rather than looking to the vast expanse of the resources right off the coast in the ocean, they would not do it. The reason is, the fish and the fish therein were seen as taboo. They didn't eat fish. That was beneath them. And so they wouldn't touch anything off the coast. And with the imminent starvation upon them, they would rather starve than buckle in their cultural norms. An interesting note that um, an anthropologist has made is that more often than not, when societies fail, it's not due to some major cataclysmic event, as we think, but often something much simpler. They will not compromise on whatever their norms and culture is, even to the very end. So when archaeologists began to uncover the remains of these establishments in Greenland, guess what they found? All manner of animal bones, but not one fish bone anywhere in their digs. They stayed true to their convictions and would not buckle down to the day that they starved to death. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And in many ways, um, there's a similar tale in the first reading we had from Acts. Thankfully, not of physical starvation, but there is a spiritual starvation that takes place there. And so what I'd like for us to do is look at the cultural attachments in Antioch that lead um, these early Jewish followers never to buckle in their cultural norms so as to embrace what God was doing in Jesus Christ. So if you'll turn with me back to Acts chapter 13, I believe we discover um, what I'll call three lessons or three cautionary tales from attachments in Antioch as we go through it together. Now, as we open to it, as you follow along on the screens or perhaps in your Bible if you've got it, um, you'll notice that we're picking up mid-story in what is going on. Paul and Barnabas have been in Antioch roughly a week or so now. Um, they arrived there. They began to teach on the Sabbath a week prior. And now as they gather once more in the synagogue on the Sabbath, we read that nearly the whole town is gathered there. Now, that's fairly impressive not just due to the total number, but due to the fact that by and large Antioch was Gentile. 
It was a cosmopolitan city on the rim of the Mediterranean Sea, as you likely know. And so the Jews, or Jewish converts that are called God-fearers in Scripture, are small in number. So the fact that they've got this massive venue of people gathered that are beyond the normal bounds of those who had come to the synagogue is quite impressive. Now, unfortunately, most portions of Scripture um, will translate verse 45 to say that when the Jewish, devout Jewish followers noticed that, they were filled with jealousy. Unfortunately, we think of jealousy as, well, you know, they're jealous at the number of people that Paul and Barnabas are pulling in. Or who are these ones that are not part of our number that are jumping into the midst of their worship in the synagogue? But that word jealousy is, is perhaps a, a miscue. What is really going on there is they're not really just jealous, they're zealous. They're zealous for the law. They are devout Jews, and as such, they're zealous for their tradition. A tradition that now these Gentiles are receiving the benefits of. Now, again, another word we have to unpack. Um, Paul talks about eternal life. When we think eternal life, we usually think that that's what happens beyond this life. In first century Judaism and later Christianity, eternal life is the eternal kind of life, if I can put it that way, borrowing from Dallas Willard, um, an eternal kind of life that we understand and experience in the here and now. This rescue act of God and Jesus Christ from corruption and destroy, uh, destruction that we ourselves often are wrapped up in, um, God's grand rescue plan that um, certainly isn't fully achieved until eternal life becomes realized, but the eternal kind of life to be delivered from these um, devices and desires, if I can use that word from the old colics in the prayer book, um, are such that God can do that work in the here and now. And so um, the reason the Jews are jealous or zealous is the fact that the Gentiles are receiving the benefits that they themselves are expecting to receive according to the law. Benefits that they have given up much for. To be a Jew in the middle of a cosmopolitan pagan culture meant that at the very least you were on the fringes of society, at the very worst you were put to death for what you believed. And here, as they hold on to those things, as they cling to what they know and have been entrusted, now these Gentiles, these pagans at which they've suffered much, are now receiving the benefits that they themselves are expecting to receive. It's no wonder they're both zealous and perhaps there is a right and righteous indignation on the surface initially that they should receive the very benefits that they are awaiting. And so Paul quickly notes, of course, in verse 46, that this is not um, something that they've received because I've neglected you, or Barnabas has neglected you. It's something that has come to you first, you've rejected it, and as such, they're receiving the benefits of it. You've chosen, if you will, to starve, not um, because no one is offering to you the same gift which they are receiving. And then we get this hinge point as Paul and Barnabas then turn to the Gentiles, to which we'll return in just a moment. But I believe there's a first lesson here for us to reflect on, a cautionary tale, if you will, about the attachments of uh, the Jewish people in this particular setting. It's a reminder that the gospel will always disrupt the gospel will always disrupt our lives. 
It disrupts the lives of these pagan people who, you know, are quite happy and content in their ways until they hear the message of Jesus, which rocks their world, disrupts everything they know, and then leads them to reorder their lives in a way that is vastly different from the way that they were operating before they heard the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, which points them toward God through Jesus Christ. It disrupts the lives of these Jewish believers who have faithfully held on to the law and who are now being told that you're so attached to it, you're missing what it was supposed to lead you to. Namely, that as you lived in this way, others would want what you have. It's disrupting even their own worldview. It's disrupted Paul and Barnabas's worldview. My goodness, they've left everything to kind of meander around um, all these towns. And every time they bring the good news of Jesus, usually it's met with joy, and then they're rushed out of the city and either stoned or pushed out to the next place. They just leave a life of disruption, according to the gospel. And thus, they've come to expect as much. Um, one biblical scholar put it this way, the gospel leaves nothing intact a good way to think about it. In fact, if there is an aspect of our life that remains intact after we have approached and been um, embracing the gospel, it's, I dare say it, that we've kept whatever we want at bay because we don't want the gospel to disrupt that area of our life. That's true in churches. It's true individually. And thus, we must confront the fact that if we are to lead the life that we're called to lead. It will continually disrupt our lives. That's just a fact of life. Um, and it's not something that just gets tidied up quickly. Jesus, just be done with it so I can get back to what I'm doing. It's a lifelong work because it's one in which there's a continual conversion of heart, a continual transformation that God is moving us ever more into the likeness of the one who's disrupted our life, namely Jesus Christ himself. And thus we must ask ourselves, what are those aspects of our lives that we'd quite rather just leave at arm's length with Jesus? You can have this, but not that. Um, or in the life of our community as a church, you can do these things, but just leave this alone. That should give us some pause. It should give us some pause as to why. Why do we have that reaction? And how can we at least just get to the place where we can say, I don't like it, but I'll surrender that to you? doesn't mean that Jesus is just going to always turn it on its head. Sometimes we just have to get to the place to where we're willing to so that he can begin to operate in the midst of whatever that may be. Now, this should come as no surprise, of course. Um, scripture, the word incarnate, Jesus Christ tells us as much, and that's actually what happens back in our reading in verse 47, if we turn there. Paul quotes Isaiah 49 and basically says to them, you've missed the point, guys. You are indignant about those around you who are experiencing this eternal kind of life now, but you should have heard and understood this was the goal all along. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That as you were set apart, as you lead life according to the law, the goal wasn't to just bring others under similar obscurity, but that rather that as you live life this way, like a moth to the flame, they are drawn in, because of the way you've reordered your life in relationship to the God you say you serve, and subsequently in your relationship to one another. The law is quite earth-shattering 
in many ways, if you've read through the Old Testament, um, giving retribution when wronged. I mean, usually that's not something any culture would do. Um, serving God and giving him what is duly his, not something that was normally done. Leading life in a way to one another that was vastly different than serving one's own end. It was quite earth shattering in and of itself. And now as that's fulfilled in Jesus, Paul is saying, as such, that was the goal. That as you led life in this way, you might draw others in. And so, of course, Paul and Barnabas challenging this and saying, look, at the end of the day, the point is this. Whoever receives this good news is welcomed into this eternal kind of life, this eternal life found in Jesus. With that, in verse 48, the Gentiles rejoice. They are indignant. Um, and, and, and life goes on, right? Um, now, the point of this, I think, is quite simple, namely that in this um, section, we recognize that not only does the gospel disrupt, but the gospel always advances. The gospel does not slow down. Nothing can challenge and rival the kingdom of God. It will continue rolling onward until it reaches its completion. And as such, Paul and Barnabas rightly say, you know, whoever wants to receive that is welcome to. As Paul would write later, matters not, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, whoever receives that is welcome to embrace it. I think it's worth noting there that because a lot of times this passage is used as a proof text to say there's where Paul and Barnabas went to the Gentiles forevermore and Peter tidily stays with the Jews. That's not necessarily true. Um, Paul and Barnabas, every other place, in Iconium and elsewhere, Lystra, um, Derby, they, they start in the synagogues with the Jews, those who here receive it. Um, if the God-fears and others come in, great. Um, if the pagans gather in, great. If the slaves gather in, great. We care not and make no preference as to who's there. But we begin where God began, and then we see what comes forth from that. However, if you choose to starve, we're not going to force you to water and drink, to use the old expression, right? And so the point is, the gospel will advance and always roll on. That should give us great comfort in a life where so much is transient and changing. But it should also give us great caution, because lest we think the gospel will tarry for us to get on board with its program, that's not always the case. In fact, I shudder to think of the names and the visible places I can recount of churches that in their own way thought that the gospel would tarry long with them and whose doors are now forever closed. They do it in very simple and subtle ways. No one wakes up and says, I'm going to be stubborn and see this through to the end. But it comes and happens in much more simple ways, right? Um, someone else will handle evangelism. Um, that will just get tended to. Um, or, I know I need to do evangelism, but when I started coming to this church, I lived right here, and my goodness, this whole community has changed. I live further away, but we're going to keep inviting others, and what we don't realize is that we just want to really invite others who look and act like us, rather than the people in which we are called to minister. Or, um, it begins in other subtle ways where we think, you know, I'm willing to have my dis life disrupted up to this point, um, but not beyond that. Others can pick that up. And, and over time, we, we kind of subconsciously or consciously um, make these mental barriers, and at the end of the day, the gospel will advance with or without us. God will use the church always, always. But the local bodies and expressions therein must be in step with what he does. Let me give you an example. Um, it, it stands as a cautionary tale for me. 
Um, we took on Good News Club, as you know, over at Friendship Elementary this year. Do you know why? Because it had been discontinued by another church. Um, that church had faithfully carried it for quite a season. One very faithful soul did it year after year after year after year. When he went home to glory, no one filled his shoes. But the gospel will advance, and thus we've picked up the thread, and we will continue on. God will always achieve his ends, with or without us. And thus we must be aware that we must respond to the gospel in such a way that we recognize that we are called to be in step with him every single step along the way. That's a prayerful work. It's not a set and forget and say our culture is great and others will just figure it out. There's a last cautionary reminder, but a hopeful one at the end of this passage. In verse 50, um, it's almost a, a, a strange way that this ends, right? After they've taught, after there's this joyful rejoicing, in verse 50, the Jews then incite others of high standing, drive Paul and Barnabas out. All the while, Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet, a sign of grace rejected, move on to Iconium. And then the disciples who are there are rejoicing and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a mixed bag. At the very least, is it not? The point is, the invitation was there for everyone to receive. No one is left out, but everyone has a different response. And unless we think that our response to Jesus is a one-time deal, we shouldn't be too quick to look at the passage there and say, but for the grace of God could go us. We must be in a place where we continue to look at our attachments in life in such a way that we're willing to respond and allow our lives to be disrupted, to be in step with the gospel, because the, the, the simple fact of the matter is that there's always an invitation to be had. Jesus is always inviting us into what he's doing. It's quite incredible when we think about it, if we give pause to reflect on it. But at the end of the day, he'll continue his work regardless. And thus, Kind of a cautionary case study of attachments and Antioch is that. That every church, every believer in every pew in every church or chair in ours um, should give some dutiful consideration to how they in, uh, uh, square up against Jesus' invitation daily to walk in his will and his ways. Corporately, we should be willing to resubmit time and time again our ideas not to be so rigid that we won't budge on this or that, um, but insofar as it was in the bounds of Scripture and according to the teachings of the church, of course, don't hear what I'm not saying, that we should be willing to find ways to reach out as we have done in every generation. And that as we do so, we should remember and take great comfort in the fact that the gospel will roll on. It advances, it advances, it never gives up, to paraphrase Churchill, if you will. That we must be in step with it at every step along the way. If we're not, if we're not, there are great halls of memorials of those who thought the gospel would remain with them forevermore. But due to their own choice, due to their own rejection, they chose to starve instead. So I submit this before you this morning because I know this church has great potential. Um, it, it is in a place that is unmatched. Trust me, I talk to colleagues every week. They're in dwindling communities. Father Greg has been a part of many of those where, you know, towns and economies are, are downsizing, and they are doing everything they can to reach the least of the lost in their subset. You are not that church. You are in the most economically prosperous area, arguably, in the nation, where people are pouring in from every part of the country, let alone the globe. 
And while there will always be cultural challenges, yes. While we will all have our own preferences, yes. What unifies us is the gospel. And the gospel will advance, and we have work to do. The fields are harvest and ripe, and we need to be faithful to be in step with Jesus. And thus, we must continue to submit ourselves before him. It won't be easy. It will always require something of you. It is not a quick fix, but it is a doful work. And I promise you this, if you walk in it, you're not just dutifully carrying out what Jesus has given you. You experience that eternal kind of life yourself as you are filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit, just as those believers were at every step of surrender along the way that allows you to have a foretaste of what is to come so that when it arrives, we are ready to embrace it in all of its glory forevermore. So may God quicken our hearts to be about his work and be ready to be in the midst of all that he has in store for us in the days and the weeks, the months and the years to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.